was sitting in the library, you know, looking at my watch, glancing, minding my business, being casual. Then when I finally got up, like, oh, it's gonna start, let me mosey on over there. It was almost standing room only. I did not have a seat. <laughs> they were turning You're people the away. Ones. Yeah. Oh my, yeah. people love <laughs> birds. And I feel like someone brought like binoculars. There are people with equipment that I thought was like for outdoors just to look at these birds. You are inside right now. You, you usually don't hear too much of an upstart when you get there, but the moment you start pulling birds out and people realize just how close they can get to them, they're amazed. We were so close. I've never been that close to a bird before of that size. And, and that's the part that gets most people, like, you know, the eagle comes out or the vultures or the owls, and, and they have, they've seen pictures, they've seen them on TV, but seeing them in person, they, they just have this magic grace about them that you just can't translate. If you've never been up close with a bird of prey, you have to do it. It is so freaky. And when I think about birds, I think about small birds pigeons you know hummingbirds blue jays like the type of birds that just jump around on the ground i was face to face with these owls and i was like this could definitely kill me this animal that i'm looking at could just be like eh i'm done but i was like these ones are injured thankfully no i'm joking but they the, even the ones that were in, they still looked like they were ready for the hunt they're they're always going to be predators, even the ones you're going to see in captivity. You know they're they've adjusted to the life change, but it doesn't change what they are. Instinctually, it's good to be back, campers. Today we're talking about creatures that have appeared in many a folklore and fable, creatures whose otherworldly beauty and undeniable strength baffle scientists, creatures whose wisdom stretches so far that it even goes to the point of answering the question, how many licks does it take to get to the center of the what? Today, we're talking about owls. Let's get to the conversation. Uh, my name is Jessica. I volunteer at Lake Milton Raptor Center, which is a center for education birds, or predominantly birds of prey that are non-releasable. They've been injured in one way or another, and they can't go back into the wild. But we also do rehab and try and take in birds that are injured and do the best we can to get them back out. I did not really consider that places like this existed. Where did you guys come from? What are you affiliated with? Well, um, depending on what state you're in, there are certain laws that you have to go about in order to become an education center or even a rehab center, because by state and federal law, those are two completely different licenses that you have to acquire. So to become an education center, you have to have facility inspections, you have to have recommendations for other education facilities like zoos or nature centers that you've volunteered at, you've gotten experience at them, and basically just backing up your knowledge that you can handle these birds and with rehab it, it's it's the same uh, so mammals are different than birds which are different than reptiles those are all their own permits you have to go to classes you have to pass state tests you have to apply for federal and state permits uh those really require a lot of like i think it's about a hundred or so hours of or volunteering at another nature center or 
Some of the rehab center. You can rehab a bunch of different types of animals. Oh, absolutely. Any native species can be rehabbed. I mean, they, everybody's going to get hurt from a frog and turtle to an eagle. I mean, there's got to be somebody to take care of all of that. And a lot of that does not happen in labs. It happens in, in people that you know, have full-time jobs and they really care. So they go and they get their rehab permit and they're, you know, for the entire bottom half of their state, they might be the only, you know, deer rehabber. And so, wow, you can rehab deer. Yeah. Wow. So they, they, it's, it's done in a home that they basically, you know, they dedicate, their entire backyard, sometimes people dedicate, like, entire houses or properties to building these facilities so that they can provide and help for these animals. And a lot of it comes out of pocket or donations because most places aren't going to be state-funded. Are there state-run programs that are rehabilitation programs? There are. There are some places. A lot of times you're going to come across those at uh, at universities, for instance, or um, even, like, the, the nature center can kind of kind of get that ranking the DNR sometimes has rehabbers but most of it's you know it's just relying on citizens that have learned what they need to do and gone through all the proper loopholes to get there anyone can go through the process of becoming a rehabber for native species oh absolutely yeah I mean we're we're always trying to push people that if they're interested in care to please please go through the classes, get your permit. Like, we need more people out there that are willing to take this on because we might, just for birds, we might get five calls a day. And that's a slow day. Let's talk about how these birds end up at the rehab facility because you're not going out and being like, here's where an owl could be hurt. There's no, like, owl hospital where they triage them and whatever. You get calls from regular people who are like, there's a barn owl in here, or I hit an owl with my car. And that one, that one right there is the most common incident that we have because birds of prey have poor peripheral vision, like great, great head on. They can read a newspaper, a football field away, but from the sides, not so hot. So when they're crossing the road because they see a rabbit or a mouse or they're just trying to move territory, they're not really paying attention to what's coming at them from the side. And that's a lot of times what happens is that we get these birds in because if you hit them, you, you know there's this giant thing that just hit your car. So when you brought the birds in, you brought them in in these giant wooden boxes. What are those? Those are actually called giant hoods. Gi- giant hoods? Yep, giant hoods, like like a, a cape or a, a hoodie. Okay. Uh, it actually, it relates back to falconry, which is the sport of hunting with a trained bird of prey where they used to place specially fitted leather hoods over falcon heads. Yeah, I've seen those. Yes, and so these are based, a giant hood is just the fancy term for the these lightweight wooden boxes that we transport the birds in that essentially does the same job as that falconry hood. It, it, it's, it's dark, it's calming, they know they're safe in it, they can calm down, they can relax in it. So does that kind of mimic the way that an owl feels when it's in? Because when I think of owls, I think about them inside of holes in trees. No, no, it's uh, it's more along the lines of um, covering up their eyes just to, if you take away the, the stimulus of 
all of this light and all of these moving objects and everything, then it, it's it's quieter, it's more calming. It's like kind of being in a nice, calm room. Okay, okay. So it's just kind of like a little bit of sensory deprivation so they're not like on the alert all the time and like agitated. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't have to worry about what's coming up behind them because what's behind them is solid. Okay. So just now when I said, when I think of owls, I think of them in trees, you said some of them. Another thing that I did not consider before I saw your presentation was exactly how many owl types exist within the owl community. So they don't all live in trees. So I'm in Southern Michigan and Southern Michigan, we have about 12 different species of owls around here. That number is going to and vary between breeding season, migration seasons, uh, winter and summer. So th- those habitat ranges do change. Uh, a lot of the times, owls are going to follow hunting niches. So you're not going to find a barred owl too often hunting in an open field, but you will find them by marshes and lakes and rivers and streams. Okay. And they kind of take up that, that wetland habitat, whereas in a field, you're going to find barn owls. Okay. Because they specialize as, like, mousers. And so it's they follow just ecosystems and habitats. Uh, they have specializations in their diet and just behaviors and the way they hunt. There is one big owl that you brought out, and I was like, that, that owl has eaten someone's pet, for sure. Birds of prey... One of their primary definitions for a bird of prey is that they only subsist on meat. Wow. And so the owls, vultures, kites, hawks, eagles, falcons, all of everything they eat comes from another creature. Yeah, they're no they're but, no uh, vegetarian owls. And they get a little bit of fruit if they eat like a eat a mouse or a vault it's been eating on grass. Oh my gosh. Secondary vegetarians. <laughs> the biggest owl in the United States in this kind of Midwest region is actually gonna be the great horned owl. And the great horned owl is gonna have about a four to five foot wingspan, um, and each one of their toes has about three hundred pounds of pressure. Wow. And, and with with those toes, the biggest game they can usually go after is naturally it's going to be like skunk or very small possum. Uh, now with humans being around, um, occasionally they're going to go for for small dogs like Pomeranians or cats. Uh, that's not a usual behavior. Usually kind of going after another predatory species, which canines and cats usually are. That's more out of desperation or naivety. Can you give me like a gauge? Like what can 300 pounds of pressure do? Uh, it can break a lot of bones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can crush a watermelon. Yeah, yeah. They can definitely pierce through a watermelon with those talons. Because most of the time, they're, a natural bird's talons are usually going to be so sharp that if you run your fingertip along the edge of it, you can actually feel it catch on the grooves of your fingerprint. Wow. So you said 300 yeah. pounds of pressure per talon? Yep. Four toes per foot. With that being said, an owl can kill a person. They could. It'd be difficult, but given the right spot or the right hit, yeah. I mean, either way, regardless, they can do serious damage. Most of the time, that's never going to be an issue unless somebody happens to accidentally stumble upon or get near a nest and then they're going to defend their home and defend their chicks and so usually they're going to give you verbal warnings that aren't 
subtle saying, you know, get out of my house yeah. before they resort to trying to attack you with talents. So speaking of verbal warnings, I have been raised thinking that owls hoot and only certain types of owls hoot. Other ones like scream like banshees, apparently. So yep. what what is the purpose of all this screaming? Like, why are owls screaming? Don't they want to be like silent predators? That's true. They, they do. And they're not going to scream during the hunt. But breeding season comes around because most of the time owls are going to be, they're, they're solitary. They don't usually live in groups. They have their kind of their established territory, their home turf that they used to be in it. But during the breeding season, you've got to call somebody over. And then once they kind of get past that courtship phase, it's down to, you know, the yelling of like, hey, honey, I'm over here. Where are you? And, uh, and just kind of establishing territory where their mates at, gotcha. uh, coordinating hunting, stuff like that. Oh, wow. When they have a mate, what is their relationship with their mate? They don't live together. They just are near each other. During the non-breeding season, they're really not interested in one another, and so it's kind of like, you go your way, I'll go mine. But the surprising thing is is that since these birds tend to maintain the same territory their whole life, they actually tend to maintain the same mate for their whole life. They're actually pretty monogamous. And there's, there's a lot of studies on, on bird mating and some that will mate for life. There are... It's almost like people, some are monogamous, some might kind of go for somebody on the side, but always come home. Uh, it's actually really interesting. A lot of people have dedicated their careers to studying that. I was at a train station in Chicago once, and I saw two bi- two pigeons mating. Um, they were in flight for part part of it. Mm-hmm. Is that what happens with owls? Like, how does that, how does that work? Uh, most- most of the time, they're not too coordinated enough to do uh, to do it in flight. But, uh, I mean, some of the court trips are really cool. Like, for instance, bald eagles have an amazing court trip flight that the, the male and the female will actually store up locked talons and just fall. Wow. And it's, it's almost like a, like a trust-building exercise. And, and courtship varies depending on species and stuff like that, but... I mean, that's definitely one of the more spectacular ones to watch. Fascinating. Yeah, I I'm always, I don't think that I've ever been told that or in all of my biology classes. And for me, I'm just like, where do the eggs come from? How is this possible? I don't understand. I knew owls could turn their heads like a crazy, ridiculous mm-hmm. degree. But how far mm-hmm. exactly can owls turn their head? So from one side to the other, they can go about 280 degrees. And it looks so, crazy when you see it. <laughs> it. It does. It's it's kind of eerie. It's a very it's a very smooth rotation. Yeah. Uh, they actually have two extra bones in their neck, two extra vertebrae that allow them to have that kind of range. And unlike humans, who our veins and nerves and arteries actually kind of weave through our spine. With owls, it's really cool because it's actually on the outside. It's suspended. So that way when they turn their head, those veins and those arteries don't kink up like a hose would and cut off blood supply. It's so smooth and effortless and looks so impossible and something that I've never seen another animal do. Can other animals do stuff like turning their heads in that way? 
Uh, as far as like that kind of rotation, I think at least in Birds of Prey, owls have the most, but that's because their eyes can't rotate in the socket. Uh, and so they need that. They need that adaptation to be able to see behind and listen behind. Whereas, like with falcons, hawks, or and eagles, they they have a little bit of movement still, so they don't need as much rotation. But I mean, they can still turn their heads pretty far around. Real quick, back to the eating because I've seen little pellets of things that birds regurgitate. What are those, and why do they do that? Those or castings, as they're also called, are basically undigestible parts of prey items. So usually it's going to be fur and bone. And so when they eat it, they eat it whole. And as it's kind of sitting in their, their gizzard or moving down in the stomach, those parts they just can't get rid of. And so it just kind of forms this, this lovely little, little casting ball of vomit. And that comes back up and clears out the system. Birds, obviously, cannot chew in any way, so they just grab this in hopes it slides down their throat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've seen plenty of birds that got too, uh, too over, over-eager. <laughs> oh my gosh. Do birds die like that? Like, is there a bird Heimlich maneuver? How does it not uh, obstruct their airway? Because a mouse, it's small, but for the whole thing to slide down or a part of it, that's intense. It is, and it's actually really cool how they get around that. So they can actually, at the very back of their tongue, where it's kind of anchored in the back of their mouth, is actually where their trachea is for breathing. Okay. And so it's it's not as far down as it is in us. Mm-hmm. And so all they have to do is get that food a little past that, uh. and they're able to open up that airway, even if their mouth is still full of food. Gotcha. And their throat has a half-down mouth in it. They can still breathe and, like, take that breather and then look out with regret going, why did I try and eat all of this? And now you're stuck and you have to follow through. Do Can they, like, do they ever abandon their food in the middle of eating? Like, be like, okay, I'm going to tilt my head this way so it slides out because I can't do this? Oh, yeah, they can, they can regurgitate. So just like with the pellets, they can decide, all right, this is a bad idea. Yeah. I need to get this out. And, and they just... Uh, regurgitate it up and then they usually decide to take a smarter method of breaking it into pieces and tearing it apart. Yeah, like this Pomeranian still had its collar on. I should have probably taken that off before (laughs) I started eating it. So right off the bat when you guys started your presentation, I instantly started learning things that I did not know. For instance, birds I know birds poop relentlessly. I thought maybe they'd take a little break because their kids around. They do not care. They just poop like constantly. And you have to hold, while holding the bird, a little paper towel under its butt to catch the poop. That is hilarious. <laughs> that is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot easier with the owls. Um, and none of our, none of our birds are, are potty trained. Can they be? But uh, some birds can. So, like parrots, crows, uh, they have a really high intelligence. In fact, crows are usually equivalent to like a three or four year old human in their cognitive abilities. Wow. And with the owls, it's not so much. About 80% of their head is taken up by their eyes alone. 
so they're they're very instinct driven. Uh, not a lot of forward brain development. The advantage is is that when they poop, they actually poop straight down. Good which, for them. Unlike like hawks and hawks and eagles actually do something called slicing. It's a fancy term for when they poop. They uh, they lift up that tail. And usually in the morning, our golden eagle can shoot it about six to eight feet if she had a squirrel the day My before. My God, if, if she had a squirrel the day before. What is the purpose or evolutionary advantage to doing that? Or is that one of those like quirks that we don't really know the reason? They just do it kind of for fun because the traits just hung around. Like A lot of the times, I, I think the biggest advantage with that is going to be getting fecal matter away from the nest. Ah, and so, because, like, when we get chicks in or, you know, these are hatchlings that have fallen out of the nest, the range that they have is astounding. Wow. <laughs> so, a lot of that's going to be just, like, the chicks would naturally back up to the edge of the nest and just kind of whittle the end over and Flick it get out. away from home. One thing that I, I, I noticed was that when you opened that hood, that wooden box, you had to kind of like negotiate with the bird a little bit sometimes. What what does the bird do when you open that box? I feel like it's like Hannibal Lecter in there, like waiting for you. <laughs> uh, normally, I usually get a talking to from the bird because they're normally kind of like, you know, I was sleeping. Yeah. Why are you waking me up? Uh, it, specifically, usually with the owls, the owls are usually ones that are going to back talk a little bit more. Um, and so a lot of times it's literally just, I take my gauntleted hand, my gloved hand that has leather on it, and I kind of present it to them. And if they decide that they don't want to step up, I might put like a little bit of pressure on the toes just to let them know what I want them to do. And most of the time they're like, oh, okay, we're going to work. All right. And sometimes they decide that they're like, well, I don't want to go to work. So we have to negotiate a little bit more. So... Do you have to train a bird to stand on that gloved hand like that? Or is that something oh, yeah, that's like a natural instinct because they like to perch on things? No, no. It's it's a very, very weird sensation for them. A lot of the times when we first get a bird in that's being non-releasable and we might decide to train it for another education center, we... <laughs> We say they have broken foot syndrome because they refuse to sit on the glove because it's not normal to them to be that close to a person. And this gloved object looks nothing like what they're accustomed in the wild. It's not a branch or anything like that. And so it's a lot of just trust building, getting them to realize, okay, I'm not in danger. Nothing's going to hurt me. I'm safe here. And once they kind of get over that, it, it becomes second nature to them to step up on the glove. So the glove is made of leather, and I, I've got a, a really detailed shot of one of the gloves that you guys had. That thing looked like it was torn to shreds. I mean, it was still clearly intact, but it looked like someone had taken an iron sponge and scrubbed at the leather for, like, years. Why leather? Like, have they developed any? I feel like you should just put your hand inside a log and then have it sit on that. That might be better. So have they always been made of leather? Are there any other materials? Do, do they ever pierce the leather? They, they do pierce the leather. It does happen. Uh, I swear I've met birds that have a sixth sense for finding the seam. <laughs> and they put a tail in through that. Uh, 
some of our birds, the, the leather, it's really not there for us. It's there for them to get traction. I see. And so, because they could actually, they could go through the leather because it's normally cowhide. Uh, but traditionally, that goes back to falconry. So a lot of, at least Western falconry, use leather gloves as to, to protect the hand of the falconer from sharp talons and stuff like that. And that's mainly what you were seeing in your photo with the eagle gauntlet. That's our training gloves for our bald eagle. Okay. Bald eagles are opinionated. Yeah, and loud. <laughs> they... Yes, they're very opinionated. They're very loud. They're they're kind of like uh, oh, I, I don't even I don't even know what a common species you relate them to. They they love to test you, and they test you with a sharp beak built for tearing fish apart, and with talons that have five hundred pounds of pressure per tail. So you say test you, and that for me it's very great that these birds are trained to sit on this, but. For every trained bird, there's like a bird in the process of being trained. So they test you while you're training them. What are some of the things? Because when you're holding that bird, it was really close to your face, right? And I was like, once again, if this bird just decided, I think I'm over it, it could peck your eyes out. (laughs) What are some of the things that happen when you're in the process of training? Tell me battle stories. Uh, (laughs) Most of the time, they're, they're not out to hurt you. A lot of the times it's it's an accident or they were scared or it's the trainer's fault for pushing too much on the boundaries. So, like, when I get a new bird in, one of the things I'm going to try and do is try and get it accustomed to, to me touching its feet, which is a very, very odd sensation for them to have this weird mammalian creature feeling their feet up and everything. And I get which is the term we use for when a bird basically reaches out and grabs and squeezes whatever it's testing. So whether that's your hand or your arm or your face, uh, it happens. It just reaches out and, like, pinches your face? Yeah, uh, sometimes if you don't have enough control over the feet. That's why we use a lot of... uh, a lot of falconry equipment, again, uh, dresses and anklets to help control the feet because being bit really isn't that much of a deal. It's going to hurt. It's going to pinch. Uh, it's the feet you got to be scared of. Just with falconry in mind, so you can't own an owl, right? But you can own a falcon. No. Technically, by paperwork, law, however you look at it, all native species to the United States technically belong to the federal government. Okay. And so by being educators or even by being a falconer, these these animals, they might be in your private care, but ultimately they're, I guess, on loan for, from the government. So they, they have a right to come in. Like the DNR can expect, inspect our education facility at any moment. And we have to be able to present paperwork, uh, show history on the birds that we've come in for rehab. I mean, we have to keep extensive records. It's all monitored and and just regulated. So it's like fostering the bird almost. Like you're, yeah, it's a yeah, ward of the state, but you are in charge of feeding and clothing it. But we can take it any time. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's that is a, that's a great analogy for it. Yeah. So with that, so is falconry just a general term for hunting with birds, or yep. is it specific it's, to falcons? No. So it's just 
literally the art of hunting with a bird of, uh, bird of prey. It it can be an owl, it can be an eagle, it can be a falcon, a hawk. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's the practice. There's no way to purchase a bird of prey. Is that is that what I'm hearing? You can. You can. So there's a lot of there's some loopholes when it comes to falconry. So falconry, just like with education and rehab. They have a permit. You have to pass the state test. You actually have to go through a two-year apprenticeship. Uh, the bird that you can either trap from the wild or purchase is dictated by state law. Uh, you can purchase birds from breeders. There are birds such as Harris hawks, which are a uh, native bird to America, but they're native to, like, southwest Arizona. Uh, they are bred for falconry. And they're very popular in the sport, but it's kind of the same thing. It's regulated by the government. Like, even a breed is a completely different permit on top of all of that. More inspections, more paperwork, and, like, every bird that's born in captivity is banded. So all of these all of these animals from rehab to falconry birds, education birds, are all tracked. Okay, so there's, like, a registry of all the birds in the area. Um, so one thing that I heard that was really disturbing is that some of these owls, especially some native to Michigan, are beginning to lose a lot of their natural habitat. Can you talk a little bit about that? Birds like the barn owl were losing because of habitat loss. And with the barn owl, they're, they're cavity dwellers, like we were talking about before. They, they need a a hollowed out tree or an old barn to, to raise their families in. And a lot of those those old barns, those dead, hollowed-out trees, people don't want them around anymore. One of the other things they don't want is fields that have gone fallow, so farm fields that aren't being used for crops. Okay. And so mice mice and rodents, they, they don't generally eat corn plants or wheat plants or anything like that. Uh, a lot of their natural subsistence is, is still found in the wild and wild seeds and wild grasses, and that's where they're going to prefer to be. And when we don't let farm fields go fallow, the mouse population drops, and with no mice to feed their offspring, the barn owls drop. With the owls that live in hollowed-out trees, do they make those holes themselves? No. No, they, they have no natural capacity to do that a lot of the times what they're doing is they're actually stealing them from like woodpeckers like pileated woodpeckers wow or even uh so grit horned owls will actually steal crow nests and they'll nest in like that towards the end of winter usually they're starting to nest at around like january february uh they'll their chicks will flood the nest next in breeding season usually will come from like the red tails and so in spring and summer, the red tails are using the nest, and then the crows might finally get their nest back. Wow, that sucks for the crows. So the owls are, like, gentrifying <laughs> the crows' neighborhood after they did all the work, and it just comes <laughs> back one day, and an owl's like, I live here now, and there's a Starbucks here now, so you can't live here. <laughs> That's crazy. So are there any laws that protect these owls' habitat? What is the impact of us losing owls in nature if any uh, i mean losing any species is, is going to have a chain reaction especially predator species with the barn owls we're going to usually see an uptake in rodent populations elsewhere uh most of the time so farmers that will have grain silos 
are going to have a big rodent population or big rodent population and a big problem with that just because they they have the actual dried seed stored away mm. and nobody's really there to eat it but for the barn owl not a lot's being done that the damage is done already if the only way they could try and bring the species back is if they started reclaiming a lot of the farm fields wow. and that's not gonna happen so no, there's no reintroduction program or anything like that because it, it would be pointless because there's no habitat for them here anymore and owls hunt pretty far away from each other, so it's not like you could have, like, this is a designated owl area. Like, they just need a lot of room. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, territories can be huge depending on the species. During the presentation, I heard that it was illegal to co- collect bird feathers. It is. Th- yep. So w- why is that illegal? Where did that come from? And what do you mean when you say illegal? Are we talking, like, a felony, a misdemeanor? Like, what is it? Oh, it is actually a, so to shoot and kill a or purposely kill a native bird of prey is a federal crime. It's actually a federal crime to purposely kill any of our native animals outside of permitted hunting seasons when you have a permit. Wow. So, and where does the gathering of bird feathers come into play? Because I saw a lot of faces in that crowd when when one of the women from the Raptor Center was like, how many of you have bird feathers? I was like, this is a trick question. Do not raise your hand. <laughs> she does that every time and every time. Like, it just makes me laugh. So, bird, that law actually was enacted in 1912. It's the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And it started by protecting our native songbirds because during that time, it was a very popular fashion to, to have a very colorful songbird, either its feathers or even to the extent of the taxidermy bird itself, uh, made into hats, into to jewelry ornaments, uh, hair accessories, uh, donning dresses. There, there wasn't anything around to protect that resource, to the, protect those animals. Now that I think about it, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of like flappers and like old time women in photos and video, and they definitely were covered in some pretty colorful feathers. So I'm just now making the connection that those are actual like hummingbird feathers or like songbird feathers. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. I mean, it, even if it weren't for fashion, so the the Carolina parakeet, it was actually native parakeet that we have in the United States. Uh, they were very colorful. They were hunted to extinction because they made good accessories, as opposed to the passenger pigeon, which was our native species of pigeon. Uh, the ones that you see in cities now, the rock pigeon, is actually an invasive species that came from across the sea, but. The passenger pigeon was actually uh, a, a larger species, and I guess the squabs, the, the babies, tasted delicious. So they were actually overhunted, and that's what caused them to go extinct. Wow. So no more passenger pigeons, no more that other bird that you said. That is <laughs> on the topic of just smaller birds and like different types of birds that you guys rehab. You guys also rehab hummingbirds. How does that? How yeah, is that even? Yeah possible does a hummingbird run into a window somewhere or get like stuck in a flower like how does a person anytime i've seen a hummingbird it's like been like zip zip and it's almost like 
a shooting star, they're like here and gone, like instantly. Oh, yeah. How do you train or rehabilitate a hummingbird? How is that even? <laughs> uh, so the hummingbirds usually come in, they might have uh, flown into a window and, and hurt themselves. Some of them actually have gotten, like, stuck in garages before because oh, no. they, they fly in thinking that, like, there might be food in there because they see something colorful and they end up being trapped so people find them that way. Bringing them into rehab is very delicate, you can imagine. Uh, we have to try and make, like, little splints. And oh, sometimes no. we might try and do them out of, like, um, so, like, we might, like, cut a piece off of a straw and try and, like, brace their wing with that and maybe do, like, this tiny little strip of vet wrap to try and keep their wing in place to hope that it heals right. Like, we, we do the best we can. <laughs> with, with that in mind, um, I think one good piece of advice that we could all use, what do you do if you find an injured bird in the state of Michigan? Uh, What's the protocol? How should you handle it? Who should you call? What's the process? So, the best thing to do is going to be getting a hold of your local rehabber. And there are lots of ways that you can find out who they are. You can go to the DNR website, and the website's going to have links to, to give you your local's numbers. You can call the DNR. Uh, you can even call a vet clinic or bring the animal to a vet clinic. And a lot of times the vet clinic will have already had interactions like this and don't know who their rehabber is. Um, even like sometimes calling the police can get you connected to a rehabber. Gotcha. So do you, you just leave it where it's at, you call someone, they'll give you instructions from there? Usually, yes. Uh, coming from a rehabber, myself and from the center, usually the best thing that we usually tell people is try and contain the injured animal. So if that's you know, if you've got a, a hurt hawk in your yard, maybe, like, put a box or a laundry basket on top with, with a brick on top to keep it from throwing it off or anything like that. Because the worst thing that can happen is we end up driving an hour to get there to come recover this animal only to find out that it's skipped town. Yeah. And now we know it's hurt, but we have no clue where it's at. It's like walking down the road with that stick with the bandana on the end, like trying to hitchhike. Wow. Big birds on the ground, they're kind of like the size of toddlers, like eagles. They're like walking on two feet, and you're like, this is a person, and it looks like it's wearing leggings. <laughs> How long have you been into birds? How did you find this? I I have been doing this for most of my life at this point. Uh, I think I started when I was around 10. Wow. And it mainly started with... Uh, an older member of my family volunteering and, and me loving animals and loving nature, just kind of, you know, fascinated by it. And so I'd go and I'd end up scrubbing out the bath pans or picking up the leftover food. Wow. But, uh, but after a while of volunteering and learning and, and just getting used to the animals and them getting used to me and the older I got, the, the more I could do with training and the more helpful I became with doing rehab and, I mean, anybody can is more than welcome to, to contact any of their centers around them or their rehabbers. Most of the time, we're desperate for help. Wow. And, you know, just having the extra pair of hands on to, to help to, to clean the bath pans, it, it means so much. That's amazing. I think that 
more people should see these birds up close. I think part of the issue with just whether you're talking about social issues or or scientific issues and, and things like that is that we talk about so much in theory, but when you see these birds up close, you're like, wow, this is a creature that should be allowed to be around for as long as it, it wants to because they are beautiful and amazing. And I'm really glad that you guys took the time out to come in and present and, and talk about those birds and that I got to see them up close. With any kind of conservation, no matter where you live, nature is all around you thriving, whether it's out in the woods or the grass growing in the cracks of the concrete. I mean, it's everywhere. And it it does us so much good to to realize that and connect with it and be able to accept and learn about what's around us because there's there's so much diversity. Wow. You know, from plants to the birds to the animals. And if you take in everything around you, it's like looking at the world and I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been a great interview and I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge on owls. It's a lot easier for me because then I don't have to go all puns intended hunt and peck for the information. I can just go straight to the source. (laughs) Well campers, there you have it. All about owls. As always, I'm Softmetric and I'll see you outside.